History Through a House, a look at British history through the doors of Longlands, giving you the facts, not just in the history books. With your host, Isadora Martin Dye. Hello, welcome to History Through a House. I am your host, Isadora Martin Dye, and in the room you have my husband, Ben. Hello, it's me, I'm Ben. And Adam, our hey, cousin. It's me, I'm Adam. I hope you're all washing your hands. And wearing face masks. And wiping your butts. I want to tell you what we've been doing at Longlands, but it's pretty much the same as we've been doing every single week for the last three weeks. Lots of gardening. We put together some shelving for the tools. Mum's bathroom. Did we talk about raised beds last week? Tomatoes are getting huge. You're going to have to put some pictures of tomatoes up. We've basically moved from being property restorers to gardeners. Yeah. To being Amish. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're just planning on tearing down the old house now. Yep. And turning that into a big raised yeah, bed garden. Yeah, we're just going to turn the whole property into a market I don't think garden. We, should, we shouldn't tear it down. I think we should just fill the first, like, <laughs> floor with two dirt. Two feet or 60 <laughs> centimeters, as they say here, into just, like, garden compost. Yeah. Which, compost. Just raised beds. Which is really funny, except for the fact that one of the letters I read last week from somebody, there's a big file on the history here. Hence, one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast. One of the letters talks about how she remembers in her memory, which was early. This letter was written, I think, in the mid 1900s. She remembers the cattle being herded out of where my mother now currently lives in the annex through what will be our breakfast room <laughs> into what will be our kitchen. But at that point, it was the stockyard. Wait, that how does which that is, which is like 12 feet below ground? Okay. Which I don't understand either. Yeah, I'm really confused. I don't understand it either. Well, also, also, like, so she went through the back the back door of your mom's. Yeah, well, the barn was where my mom's was. Right, it, well, it was the barn. Yeah, so they'd have gone through the back door of my mom's. Through the front door of your mom's. Through the front, through the back door of the old house. Yeah. Okay, but it's the door that goes into your kitchen. Mm -hmm. So where the auger is. Where the auger is, but will be our breakfast room. Okay, so the kitchen's going to be in the back half of that yes. room. Yes. Okay. And the back half of that room, which is where the kitchen will be, was at that point just a yard. In the 50s? No, the woman was writing in the mid-1900s, but I think she was talking about pre-1912, which is when that room got built. Gotcha. The Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Is this I, By the way, I actually think I just picked up 1912 because we talked about it last week, not because... When the Romans were. <laughs> um, all right, so that brings us to what we are going to talk about this week, which is, as my husband, who has obviously been paying attention knows we are finishing up the Iron Age and moving into the Romans. Yes. Well, the Roman Age was the Iron Age. The Iron Age was happening when the Romans started invading. Now, I find some aspects of the Romans really interesting and some of it really, really boring. Mm. And mostly I just find it complicated because there are more people named with the same name than any other period in history. So... We are going to do a little bit of Roman invasion stuff and war stuff, but we're also going to try and, in every single episode, talk about one thing to do with the lifestyle. So food or clothes, romance and marriage, government, so that we actually have kind of a basis of what life would have been like, not just endlessly. Alexander I moved further up the country and he got pushed back by the Scottish, and then Alexander II pushed again up the country because it becomes very repetitive. Mm. All right, we're going to talk about the most important thing that I think we will ever talk about on this podcast. Sweet peas. Druids. Hey, finally. Finally, we we're, were going to talk about the Druids. <laughs> we were Druid adjacent like five episodes ago when we talked about Stonehenge. Yep. We were, we were, but not, you know, I thought we'd take our time to get there. The Druid, is Stonehenge during the Iron Age? No. 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 It was there during the Iron Age, but we talked about it like three or four episodes ago. That's what I thought. Okay, sorry. Stone Age has been there for much, much longer. Long term. Than the Druids. Now I'm gonna, on my research of the Druids, one thing came up over and over again, and I feel that I need to say this to everybody: Druidism is not a religion. Okay, everybody thinks that the Druids are a religious order. It is not a religion. Okay. It, what are they? They just practice spiritual rites? It's spirituality. Okay. It, it's more along the lines of, say, Buddhism than it is Christianity. Okay. Is Buddhism not a religion? No, it is. It is, but if you... I'm is saying Buddha? this to yeah, be... Buddha has a deity. Is it Buddha I, the deity? Mm -hmm. 
I'm saying this to the perspective of my research that I've done. I want to be very clear that I am not saying Druidism is a religion because a lot of Druids get offended by it being called a religion. Mm-hmm. And it's not Druids. Yeah, yeah, there are new Druid, new age Druids, mm. um, and they get quite offended with it being called a religion. And since it's not my religion and it's not my not religion, I'm going to respect <laughs> what they, I'm going to respect what they want to call it, which is we are not talking about religion here. And I will say that actually, when we get into it, as we're going to any minute now, it doesn't strictly fall under what you would think of as a religion. It's much more of what I would consider a society. Okay, human sacrifice. No evidence of it. Dang. <laughs> the Romans, they reckon, used it as an excuse for massacring the Druid, Druids. Mm-hmm. But actually, as far as I can figure out, there is no evidence of it. I will do some deeper research on that as we talk about them culling the Druids, mm. which doesn't happen for a little bit longer. What we're going to be talking about now primarily is the period of history that falls between 100 BCE up to... 56 BCE. Britannia. No, well, as I've been promising, our time scales are now getting much shorter. Mm-hmm. We're now going to be starting to talk, for instance, next week we will talk about 54 BCE up to about 20 BCE. Cool. So our de- we're talking in decades now, not... Things get more interesting. I think we should go back to talking in millennia. Uh-huh. Let's talk about the next four millennia. So we can just get rid of... We can just be done in So like we can be done episodes. tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> What's okay. going to happen 2,000 years from now in England? Ooh. Supercontinent? I don't know. Pangea, Hoverboards. Pangea 2.0? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Druid comes from the word Drusi, which is an, yeah, an Irish Gaelic word for oak tree, they think. Mm. Basically, uh, I mean, you guys obviously don't know this, but I very regularly will wear a Tree of Life necklace, and I've had some interesting conversations in people I've met because the tree of life has so many different symbols to so many different religions. And one of them is the Druid religion. I've seen that. Not a religion. Druid. Culture. Culture. And it's interesting that even the name symbolizes back to this oak tree, this tree of knowledge, tree of life. Mm. Um, And this is pre-Christianity, everyone needs to remember. So this is is pre-tree of life being a thing to do with the tree of knowledge or the creation of the planet yeah they had contact with the spirit world and used holistic medicine mainly to heal people mm-hmm. so in many ways they were more of a shaman okay than a priest yeah they were also teachers and scientists and judges judges and philosophers and lawyers mm. they weren't just following they were there to keep society calm and protected and it's one of the major things that the romans had an issue with generally historians now believe that it was less that they had an issue with them human sacrificing and much more to do with the fact that they were doing the job that the romans wanted to do Mm -hmm. which was policing and governing the people so were druids were iron age druids a specific group of iron age people or was everyone was everyone at this time a druid? No, so you actually had to do about twenty years of teachings People to become lived druid. that long. Uh huh. Oh. And England was the epicenter of druidism, but people from Europe would come and study with British druids. Hmm. So we really are talking societies now, and I know it doesn't yeah. seem like we've talked millennia to get to this point, but at this point, there are there are whole schools and cultures and everything built up to become. A druid, master priest. The they had a system of robes that they think were evident. So the elder would have a gold robe. Hmm. White would be for the priests. Um, sacrifices were red, and they were fighters. Generally, druids were not taxed. They didn't have to fight. Also, women were equal to men at this point, so we're not talking just Druid men. There's women involved in this too. Blue was for the bards, <coughs> and black was for the newbies. Hmm. Wait, you said re- sacrifices? They're called sacrifices. Are they just gladiators? I didn't get too deep into this because okay. I assume that sacrifices will be one of the major things that we talk about when we talk about human sacrifice. Yeah. 
and fighting and druids as they fight with Romans. Because that wouldn't be much different than what the Romans were doing with gladiators anyway. No, and if it if it is what I think it is. Yeah, and I and I think I honestly thought the druids and they are a fairly mystical thing. They didn't have a written word, mm-hmm. so almost everything we're learning about the druids came from Roman. Yeah civilization roman written down they reason why it took 20 years for them to study is all their history was oral okay so they had an oral tradition of handing down stories and cultures and way of doing things in medicine so that's one of the reasons it took so long to study was it just took too this that long to learn it you Mm -hmm. couldn't pick up a book they did not have books consequently once the druids were wiped out by the romans all that information was lost with them. Okay. And it was like complete eradication of, of druids, right? There was no, there's not there was nothing really left besides what is being found. Not really. After the Romans left. Uh the, like, yeah, I mean, all like, the rec- records yeah. from the Romans okay. being there. And the, I mean the the Romans did record a lot of information about the druids. Mm-hmm. And the druids did use some Greek words. They were writing some stuff down, but it wasn't a complete history. There was no one in Right. Doing an autobiography as their time of a druid. There were a lot of people doing their autobiography as their time of a Roman in Britain. Mm-hmm. So the druids kept coming up. But obviously there was a certain level of propaganda associated right. with that because the Romans wanted to abolish the druids. Yeah. So we talked about most of the druid religious holidays last week, which were the Halloween, right. um, the which was the druid new year. Uh, also, at this point, we started adding in Yule for the winter solstice. So, again... Yule? Yule. Yule, Yule like Yuletide. Or Yule log. Yes. Again, Yuletide how logs. Yule pods. Mm-hmm. Now, there's actually not much of a, uh, evidence that Stonehenge was a druid site. They... Wait. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, okay. Because they Stonehenge was certainly not built to be a druid site. Oh uh, yeah, it wasn't built by druids either, was it? They may have adopted it. The druid religion was something that came in with the Celts, which came in later than Stonehenge was built. Mm-hmm. There are, well, one of the most, I don't, I totally get it, sites around here that was associated with the ancient druids is Wisman's Wood. Now we walked yeah. out there with James and Rachel when they came to visit last year. And it's a pretty decent walk out. Mm-hmm. Well, an aftermath. Yeah. Here? Or is it like there's like a parking area that you... It's over by two bridges. It's over by the two bridges in Dartmoor. And you walk out and it's an old ancient oak wood. Mm-hmm. And the oaks, because they've grown on poor ground, are stunted and very small. And it is one of the most... Mm-hmm mystical places i think with the stream yeah. running through the bottom and that's much more typical of where the druids would have performed go, ceremonies you should go hike out and camp there it's amazing um anyway it's worth going out to yeah totally worth going out to and um, anyway so that's the druids so they are hanging out in england and basically running england okay then julius caesar comes on the scene now obviously pretty much one of the most famous Roman people of all time. And he came on the scene and he was actually the first Roman to really have an attempt at invading England. And I say that because while he did a very good job of invading and taking over the Gauls, England proved to be the thorn in the side of the Roman Empire pretty much from this point onwards. The Gauls were the French. They were the French. It was a Celtic region in Western Europe. Okay. It was conquered by the Romans in 203 BCE. The Gauls were Celtic too? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And and it was those Celts that were coming over to study Druidism oh, okay. in England. They lost it in 460 C, uh, CE. Mm-hmm. So the Romans actually owned uh, 956 CE. So the Romans actually had Gaul for nearly 1500 years. Okay. Now... Julius Caesar was the person who came to do that. Now we're going to talk, we're going to go on a massive tangent here because we're going to talk about European history for a minute. Unusual for this podcast. Um, We're going to, because we're going to talk about European history. One thing that's going to come up over and over again is this idea of a campaigning season. Now it comes up with the British history, with Viking history, with all of this, which is there was this 
thing um, that you would campaign in the summer. So actually, you would fight wars between, say, March and June. Then you'd take a break so that all your soldiers could go back and pull in the crops from July and August and September. And then you'd fight again October, November, December before it got too cold and you'd go home again. So it was a job. It was a seasonal job. Was they Fighting wars was seasonal. Yeah. So they couldn't take they couldn't take people away from the crops for too long. So they had to go back and farm. And they also didn't have the ability to get through a lot of winter climates without taking a whole load of stuff with them. And when you're campaigning you can't take that kind of level of Get provisions for that provisions long. for that long. England has particularly become well known for the campaigning season because they had to get across the channel. Mm-hmm. So people invading England or England invading other people had to wait until the seas across the channel were calm enough for the boats to cross. There's a couple of other bits of rules of war that were going along at this time too, which one was notice was supposed to be given. According to the Roman Empire, you had to go into the country that you wanted to fight, give them a heads up, and give them a chance to solve whatever problem and grievance that you were going to fight them for. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit like the... And I mean, a lot of these Roman things come up as knights, and but it was a bit like slapping someone around the face with a glove <laughs> and challenging them to a duel. Okay, You had to present that first. And they had to have time to be able to come up with some form of diplomatic solution. The Vikings also campaigned on a seasonal basis but they didn't have the niceties of giving notice but we'll get into the vikings later pillaging yep and not using the r word not using the r word they were still seasonally campaigning all the way up to world war one dating and pillaging yeah (laughs) by world war one wars started to become a year-long process by world war two they should have had it become a year winter stop because that was when or maybe not but that was when Hitler lost a whole load of his troops by marching them into Russia in the middle of winter not the smartest move and if he'd learned anything from previous warfare you take the winter off it's one of the way he lost a lot of men and Russia that's one of the major reasons a lot of Russian soldiers died during World War 2 too Mm. they were fighting during the winter in Russia with no provisions and they mostly just starved to death they can just eat grass and tree bark there's no grass in Russia. Not in it's covered in snow. Don't eat the yellow snow. Don't invade Russia in the winter. That's kind of the mission. Um, your top ten tips and tricks. So, campaigning season. That's campaigning season. It's worth keeping in the back of your mind as we talk all the way through. Certainly during the Elizabethan periods and the Tudor periods, it does seem like campaigning was basically what they did in the summer for fun. Okay. Who needs the boat race? <laughs> Let's go to France and kill people. Yeah, that was, that was kind of how it went. Okay, so back to Julius Caesar. He was born in 100 BCE, and he lived to 44 BCE. He lived to be 144? That's no. not how that works. He lived to be 66. Yeah, there we go. He lived to be 44. No, he 56. Lived to be six, 56. 54. 66. <laughs> no, oh, I don't know. 56. 56. 56, yeah. 56. 300,000. <laughs> so, he... Okay. He was doing his thing. And doing that Julius that Caesar thing. He was doing his thing. He was invading Gaul. And he decided... Where's Gaul? France. France. Oh. And his big problem that he had was... He'd been promoted to something that was called the proconsulship, and it gave him of 10 years of immunity from prosecution. So he decided to take that and go fight all these countries without giving them any warning, which was against Roman law. So he illegally invaded Gaul, and then he decided to move on to England. He first tried to invade England in 55 BCE, However, he left it a little late, and he headed off. Yes. Just in case anybody was wondering, Gaul is France. (laughs) (laughs) He left it a little late, and he headed off to try and invade England in the end of the year, towards the end of the year. 
He'd had a quite a lot of problems with it, which was that England was a huge trade trade route. We were still trading a lot of tin, copper, and iron back and forth between the Roman Empire. And no one was willing to give him much information on England because they still wanted to maintain good trade ties there. And because it was across the channel, he couldn't get much first-hand information. Mm-hmm. So he set off, and his aim was to land at Dover, which is the, the closest white point. cliffs of Dover, yep. which is the closest point to Gaul. It's the shortest distance of the channel. <laughs> and up on the top of the cliffs of Dover were a whole load of people in chariots, which the Romans didn't have for fighting. And he took one look at them and moved on up the coast. They were also naked. Yeah, and painted blue. Because mm. that, by the way, is not. A mythology thing they in fact did paint themselves blue yes so he moved on they, for th- they also fought naked they did for the scottish tend they did to fight, fight naked. naked i think did the british fight naked too the scottish definitely fought naked these just... guys fought naked apparently okay from a separate podcast which is almost as good as this one <laughs> the golf so, one yeah <laughs> those swing though <laughs> and so they moved up the coast and they ended up landing in kent which was east anglia East Anglia comes up time and time again in this period, and they got off at the beach, didn't really realise how quickly England's tides came in, a whole load of different stuff. They kind of conquered the beach, from what I can figure out. Mm. Then, Why do you need anything else? Uh, exactly. But they didn't really get much further. We're going they, to tan here. They in took, England? in England in winter, <laughs> they took, started taking kind of hostages, which... From what I can figure out is where British tribesmen would give up kind of a son or a daughter to the Romans in exchange and they would hold them nicely in exchange and it would like be their security that that tribe wouldn't rebel. So they would take a hostage yeah, to force the tribe into submission. Mm-hmm. It was just like a tit for tat. They were basically trading their children. So they did that got a few people vaguely on side their ships all got wrecked the tides came in really quickly julius caesar was like eh and headed home again this is for the first time this is oh, first okay. invasion yeah because you can't really attack the white cliffs of dover this is in no. 55 bce he just was like his ships were getting destroyed and he thought you know what i'm gonna go home so he went back and he first he took a few things back with him like for instance the chariots he looked at a couple of ships that england had built and thought they looked pretty good so he went back and did a redesign. He came back the year after, at the beginning of the year, with a puppet king, which we will go into a bit more at some point, but not this episode, and horses and a military and everything like this this time. And he landed in the same spot, like a king who was already favourable to the Roman Empire. What had happened was this king had been kicked out um, ended up in Gaul, so Caesar brought him back and was going to install him. He came back in, and he was much more successful this time. To a large extent, he managed to move much further inland. He was much more intimidating. Tribesmen generally started, generally, he started giving people the people started giving them the idea that they were going to become tributes to Rome. Okay, so they would not be part of Rome. He wasn't conquering. But they were empire light at this point. They were going to send taxes that way, money that way, a couple more hostages that way. He felt like he'd done a pretty good job. What is he doing that is forcing them to give him hostages? He came with six legions of Roman empire. Because it sounds Roman like he's army. just like walking in with like a couple of dudes. <laughs> and they're like, so, it just takes them off. And it sounds like they just want to get rid of their kids. <laughs> so... We are going to talk a lot more about guerrilla warfare. Are they? The they are, You're a free babysitter. They are. Just take they it. are fighting battles at this point. Yes. Or is he and just walking no. in and he's like, "Look at how many dudes I brought with me," and they're like, "Oh, here's a kid." <laughs> That's so. It's somewhere in between. He walked in with all these people, cavalry, all the rest of it, and said, "They." So, they had all. These are all separate tribes in England. This mm-hmm. wasn't like an organized fighting force no, like the Roman yeah, Empire. Yeah. They had, in fact, at this point, put one king in charge. Of England. Of this fight against the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily of England, but they basically all the kings of all the different tribes have got together and been like, you have the best war experience, you're in charge. Okay. He fought, and I wish I could remember his name and I should have put it down. 
he fought one battle with the Romans, like in a stand your ground kind of way, mm-hmm. and realized very quickly he was going to lose. Mm-hmm. So then they started much more of a guerrilla warfare tactic. Yeah, um, raiding. Uh, they knew where they they knew the only place that they could cross, for instance, at the River Thames. And they put up a whole load of the barbs and stuff so that there was no way they could cross at that point, using their knowledge of the terrain. Yes. And the fact that Caesar at this point still hadn't been basically any further into England than off the beach in Kent. Yeah. So he had no idea of who he was going to meet. He had no idea the fact that all these different tribes in England were incredibly diverse. In East Anglia, you've got a much greater farming communities. Whereas if you're going a little further north, you've got much more warring communities. Mm -hmm. So he was meeting all these different people and it wasn't quite going as well as he thought it would. He didn't feel like he'd done too badly, bearing in mind at this point the Brits were seen as definitely... Well, put it this way, at this point they thought the world ended at Britain. Okay. So they didn't even know... There's a, a report from Julius Caesar saying England's a rectangle. Like, they didn't even have that kind of knowledge at that point. They really genuinely thought if you went into England, you were at the end of the world. Mm -hmm. They had no knowledge. So even though he didn't conquer it as such, he came back with much stronger ties, much stronger trade. A few more kids. A lot more tributes. Mm -hmm. Very Hunger Mm Games-y. And in some ways, it was, in many ways, it was considered very successful. It took... Like he walked around, and nobody really knew who he was. It's like, who are you? He's unknown. Right. I'm Julius Caesar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Took... Have fun. That's all. That's like the impression yeah. I'm getting is that like he just was just wandering around England with no like real <laughs> with a whole load of army with no purpose or. Who are you? I don't speak your funny language. Yes. Okay, great. It was a rec- <laughs> Think of it as a recon trip. No, the Brits were wearing face paint. The Brits and were hiding in the river. The Brits were. Generally terrifying and very annoying to the Romans for the next several thousand years. Until the Romans essentially gave up trying to fight it Mm -hmm. and just left. But England was a huge source of tin, which was very, very necessary in the Roman Empire. So they did want to have England. Yes. He left at the end of that season and England was not actually conquered for a long time. Like, these were not, uh, I class what Julius Caesar were doing were invasions, mm-hmm. not conquering. Okay. There's a big difference. Yeah. So we'll get into the invasion, but by this point, England is adopting a lot of Roman culture. There's a lot of trade. Romans are coming more freely in and out of the country at this point, and it's less mysterious. Okay. They at least know that the world doesn't end in England. End in England. So let's talk a little bit about the Roman government. Yes. I know you're all desperate to hear about it. So the reason why we're starting with the Roman government is because obviously they are going to be imposing their governmental structure and class structure very heavily on the Brits and they try and do that very, very quickly. So we're going to kind of compare and contrast what was going on in England at that time versus what we're going to see as the Romans come in. Mm -hmm. Okay? So... The classes in Roman, the Romans overlapped. They were established by ancestry, status, senatorial, whether you're an equestrian, gender, and citizenship. Okay? Compare this with what was going on in England at that point. Ancestry, there's no evidence that there was ancestral passing down of titles. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a centralized government, although we do see this appearance of what would some would say is a ruling class of druids. Gender was much more equal within the druids. There was, and has always been, by the way, l- much less of an idea that British women can't rule in England. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've already talked about warrior queens. Yeah. And we're going to do a whole episode on Bodicea in the next kind of one or two episodes, who's pretty much England's most famous warrior queen until Elizabeth I comes along. And also there is no idea of citizenship in England because there isn't a country to be a citizen of. Mm -hmm. So the way that the ruling, there was the patricians Mm -hmm. and the plebeians. Mm -hmm. Now, plebs is still something... Do the Americans use plebs as a a cultural slur? Yeah. 
So we've got the upper class and the lower class. At the point that we're talking, Rome has been around for a very long time. They are, these two classes are now both allowed to join the Senate. It's considered a republic at this time. Although I would say republic overstates it because it was perhaps more like an oligarchy that was definitely ruling families. Mm-hmm. A bit more like Russia. There was this idea that there was a republic. They had a lot of new money people because trade was such a big thing. So a lot of the plebs actually had financial resources to be involved in politics, but they were basically just new money. Mm-hmm. Um, think of it as Trump versus the Kennedys. Okay. Like the Kennedys have... The Rockefellers. Or the Rockefellers. Yeah. Um, or the Kennedys. This is, by the way, also where the patron, or patron... The... The, the tequila <laughs> yeah no the patron and client relationship started this idea of providing services to a client in exchange for when they went to war so they called it a patron and a client but it's almost more this feudalistic idea that we were talking about which is they would provide trade to them they would provide access to food and things like that and in exchange when your patron went to war you would fight for yeah, them you can live inside our walls but yeah when we do fight you have to do the war with us yes absolutely so they divided their people into what are called roman popular assemblies they had a whole load think of it like you would think of your republic here which were checks and balances you don't have a republic here um, and, and a republic, <laughs> republic in, here in republic in the country. states where you have a, a series of checks where you have a series of checks and balances so there was the house of the plebs, basically. There mm-hmm. was a house of what are called equestrians, or equites, who were those that were basically knights. I said equites. Equites. There was the senate, <laughs> which is perhaps the most famous part of this. And they could all balance each other out. They all got different votes and different says and things. Obviously, as we said, this was an oligarch. So actually, really, whatever the top elite wanted happened. But there was this idea of, a republic way of doing things. Mm-hmm. There was also a strong idea of the patriarchal family, which meant that the head of the family, the male head of the family, was the head of the family under the Roman law. They, and this comes up time and time again, they could let their son go free to be head of his own household, but you were also allowed to kill your family members for treason. It wasn't considered murder. You had the ability to be able to declare someone treasonous and kill them. Mm, Define treasonous. As far as I could tell, really, if you're the patriarch of your family, think of it as the lines of you it's like are everyone. Yeah, everyone you have underneath you has yeah. basically got the same rights as a slave. Oh. They're your property. You get to choose what to do with them. Why did this fall by the wayside? <laughs> we should bring this back. <laughs> I am going to go into romance in this era, which sounds was... like it wasn't allowed. <laughs> well, so there's a lot of things. In this era about who you could marry, what happened when you were a woman and you married somebody? For instance, who did you belong to at that point? Were you the patriarch of one family, under the patriarch of one family, or the patriarch of another? It's really, really interesting, and it comes through very much into British culture too, which is the Brits very much had this idea at this point of, well, they didn't have an idea of marriage. So the Romans were bringing in a very new idea to them entirely. They were fairly famous, the Druids, for uh, polygamy. Yeah. (laughs) Flipping in triangles. Commitment Commitment was not something that the Romans praised them for. So, and and women, they did have marriage, the Druids, but women could choose to get divorced. Hmm. There was much, it was a very different attitude towards it, and the Romans brought a very different attitude towards romance and marriage with them. So, and since that, honestly, just like now, I'm pretty sure that who you married and who you lived with took up quite a lot of your time and energy. I think it's worth talking about in more depth at a later date. Also, there was slavery. Um, at this point, they were descendants from debtors or prisoners of war. Mostly they did agricultural labor. Um, slaves with skills were often freed after the owner's death. And actually, if you were a skilled slave, you would get paid and you could buy your own freedom. Mm-hmm. So back in Roman times, all the farmers were slaves. A lot of them. And now they're the backbone of this great country. Both great countries. Because that's an American slogan. It is, yeah. 
Um, another weird thing. Prep for work. Another weird thing at this time in the family and political idea was the idea of adoption. It comes up time and time again in Roman history. Stealing babies. Nope, not even slightly. They were adopting people to be their heirs. So if you didn't have children, mm-hmm. you could just adopt some, you could Anybody. adopt a man. Okay. They didn't have to be a child. <laughs> you would just adopt them and that would make them your heir. They can actually be older than you and you could adopt them. Okay. So I like this. This is weird. It's very, very weird. And it would Prince Charles called. He wants to adopt me. <laughs> it would make a huge it made a huge difference to him. Roman history, this idea of adoption. Julius Caesar adopted his successor. Many, many of these people, what they ended up doing was picking the person that they thought would be best for the job and adopting them. Mm-hmm. Whether that was anything to do with their biologicalness or not. Okay. It's interesting because a lot of the time we're going to talk about Romans, we can sometimes talk about it like it is a hereditary position, being Caesar, mm-hmm. um, or being Octavius, or but it isn't. They are actually usually not related at all and just adopted in, but then they would be called the adopted son of. Okay. I just find it weird that you can adopt someone who's older than you. Oh, that was that, the, was that the point of this? Well, no. I, I mean, the whole thing is just that it might come up quite a lot, this idea of adoption. Okay. Okay. So, we have covered quite a lot of different bits and pieces. We have talked about where the Brits were at this point. What year is it? We're about 54 BCE. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, the Britons... Julius Caesar. Yeah. 46. The, yes. And the Brits are 56. The Brits are 56. Uh, oh, no, 46, yes. And so the Brit tribes are becoming what are called client tributes or client kingdoms. There's much more trade with Rome. Roman ideas are beginning to filter back. The Druids at this point still don't feel under any pressure. They're just running their country. They've not been invaded in the sense of having anybody left behind. So when Caesar leaves... They all go. Everyone goes. Okay. All his soldiers. He brings six legions with him the second time. He only brings two the first time. I don't believe you. No one stayed? Well, no, because they have these massive Roman villas here. This is the first time. Oh, okay. This is in... Did they take any Brits back with them? Yeah, the tribute. The, oh, were the, the tributes. The, the, they didn't, like, leave any The hostages. Spies. They were like, hey, you. Paint yourself blue. Roberto. What's an Italian name? Mario. Just call everyone Julius or Marcus. Mario. Yeah. Mario, Luigi, (laughs) you stay here and you wear their outfits and you report back to us. They probably couldn't speak. My code name is Bowser. Speak the language. Uh, They almost certainly couldn't speak the language, although they had invaded Gaul at this point and Gaul was speaking almost the same language as Britain, so they They probably picked up a little bit. No, they were speaking Celtic, a version of Celtic. Okay, so now we are going to move on to one of the most famous murders of all time and our first official real murder of the podcast. Is it Julius Caesar? Yes, it is. Why'd you ruin that? I was, oh, I was sorry. waiting for the suspense. Do you want to do, the, do, you want to do a cut back and then yeah. start Say over? Say that again. <laughs> we are going to do one of our first real murders no, of do, the podcast. Do it with more suspense. Okay. <laughs> We'll get like a big... Dun, dun, dun. So for the first time in the History of a House podcast, we are going to look at our very first murder. It is one of the most famous murders. It was immortalized by the bard himself. Who could it have been? Who's who's the bard? Shakespeare. Billy? Billy. Billy Boy. Billy Boy Shakespeare. And the murder is that of... Hamlet. Julius Caesar. What? Simba's dead. Uh, Okay, so Julius Caesar illegally invades all these different countries and then he returns back. He But he he, had ten years to do it. Yeah, but he lost his immunity and was asked to return back to Rome. Okay. How many years into this? This is oh this is he leaves England to go back to deal with this. Oh why? Because they're getting a bit 
pissed at him invading all these countries mm. without getting permission from the Senate, which is one of the legal responsibilities of the Roman Empire. You'd think if he had really wanted to conquer England, he could have just not gone back. And kept I don't on. think he had enough people. Ah, England okay. proved to be quite hard to conquer. Okay. So True. he gathers his troops. Well, he has his troops, and they ask him to set down, step down as head of the army. Uh-huh. And he refuses. He takes his troops, and he starts marching towards Rome. This is seen as an act of war, and now Julius Caesar is at war with the Roman Empire. There is a Treason! Civil, there is a civil Murder. war. Against him are the Popularis, the Optimates, and the and Pompeii. The Optimus Prime. I just sounded so much like a freaking Transformers that well, I just thought... The, the, the volcano was against him? Um, Pompey is actually a man. At this point, he is basically Julius Caesar's. <laughs> there were so usually in charge at this point were three men: one for the money, one for the war, one for the legalities, I believe. And he is basically the legality dude. I thought it was one for the money, two for the show, <laughs> three to get ready. <laughs> now go, go, go. <laughs> and Pompey is representative of the Roman Senate. Okay. Okay. Long story short, many battles ensue. I couldn't care less it's got nothing to do with british history and couldn't care less it's got nothing to do with british history and caesar wins and the roman republic officially turns at that point from the roman republic to the roman empire so he's in england they say hey jules come back because you're breaking all of our rules yeah he goes okay Comes so back. No, I'm not coming back. And then I fights see, a civil war with Rome some, and wins. We've got some salad dressing for you. Oh, call me back in a jiffy. That's peanut butter, though. Caesar salad dressing? No, jiffy. Be back in a Paul Newman. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he comes back. He makes himself dictator. Um, makes and Caesar. What makes him so Caesar, right? Because isn't is Caesar also the posi- name of the position that he? No, plays? he he is Julius Caesar. Yes, but isn't I thought that the position was also like Caesar? No, it's okay. just it just is. The position it, is, is emperor. Emperor, and that's why it becomes the Roman Empire. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he makes himself well. Firstly, he makes himself dictator for like five or ten years. Then he changes it to dictator for life. He puts Mark Anthony in as Master of the Horse, and this is really unpopular for, well, for the fact that you've taken a republic that basically prides itself on an idea of democracy and listening to everybody, and then you take this warmongering, yes, at this point, hero, and actually most of the people of Rome fully supported him making himself a dictator. Mm-hmm. However, the Senate realized which way this was going to go. Yeah. Okay, so the tale of two Brutuses. Brutussi. Bruti. I actually wrote that up. <laughs> I'm so Brutuses. Of course you did. <laughs> Bruti. Because who doesn't do that? So we're going to call them Decimus and Marcus because those are actually their names. Okay. Um, Decimus Brutus and Marcus Brutus, who were distant cousins but not really related at all. The reason why I'm going to stick with the Brutuses is because there is... Perhaps the most famous line associated with this set, this assassination, which is, do we even do we have to? Yeah, one of you has to. And you, Brutus. They too, Brute. Okay. Yes, and look at you in two separate languages. Indeed, well done. He's trying to high five you now. Give me that. Sit quietly so we don't kill anyone listening with headphones. Okay, so let's talk about Decimus Brutus. He was heir in second degree to Caesar's will, and he was actually put as guardian in any of Caesar's children. He served Caesar's army in the Gaelic Wars, and he was considered an amazing war hero. Marcus Brutus followed Pompey. He, Caesar demanded that he was captured alive, mainly because Caesar reckoned that Marcus Brutus could have been his biological son. After Marcus Brutus was defeated... Caesar gave him, he wrote an apology to Caesar for waging war against him. Caesar immediately forgave him and welcomed him back into his inner circle. That's, that's a bad idea. 
Uh, Decimus oh, we're Brutus. Brothers. <laughs> we're brothers. We're family. We're family. So we've got the two Brutuses and Aaron is in a circle. One has been a loyal henchman from day one, and one seems to be, yeah, kind of the prodigal son who's found his way home. The maybe son. They were both. I feel like I should be doing this as a true pro- crime podcast, which is. So Julius Caesar was discovered on the floor of the Senate with 23 stab wounds. That's a lot of stab. That's it? That's a lot. That's many. Any in the face? Because if it's in the face, then you know it's personal. <laughs> Apparently there were 60 people stabbing him. Oh my and lord. And people they missed stabbing him. him. They missed 37 people. <laughs> no, they stabbed each other. Oh. By accident. And These morons. Uh-huh. Sometimes when you get into a frenzy. So he was actually found on the floor of the Senate, stabbed to death, and three slaves took him... And took him this is what I okay. okay let me just okay. He was stabbed by sixty people, and not any of those sixty people found him dead. They left him there. They left him. They, they left ran. Him there. there was like a bloodlust thing, and they ran. Okay. Cowards. So here is how the it went down. So okay. Like, is this after the slaves find him? You mean? No, this is actually how they killed him. Well, the murder. Well, they stabbed him. Yeah, but in between the they're now the two Brutuses are now in the inner circle. We jumped to he was found dead on the Senate floor. We're oh. now going to go back a half a half an hour. <laughs> it was the Ides of March, mm. which is the day that everyone has to pay tribute to stuff. So there's usually big celebrations and people, the Senate, were meeting. Every month has an Ides. Yes, but, but the Ides of March was that. Julius Caesar didn't die on the Ides of February. No. So but you have to pay your taxes on the Ides of April. That's true. Cassius and Demus managed to convince Decimus Brutus to join the assassination. So the three of them were actually the three that planned it. It's to me, says a lot about how they felt about Caesar's dictatorship, that one of his most loyal henchmen for many decades was quite quick to... To be like, yep, we'll do this. We'll do this. Marcus Brutus, on the other hand, was battling his own problems at home, which is he just divorced his wife to marry her cousin, I believe, or his cousin, one of the two. Mm-hmm. And it's the difference between Virginia and West Virginia. You gotta get that right. <laughs> and he had managed to piss off quite a lot of people doing that. And oh, well. like his mother in law. And these are all these are all like the elite ruling families of Rome. Yeah, they're like part of the oligarchy. So to divorce one and marry another is not very good. Um, so he had was dealing with his own problems. Did and he miss the assassination? No, he he was there, and in fact, he his wife was the only woman to have known of the assassination. Mm. So they both had really pivotal roles in the actual murder. Decimus Caesar had heard rumors that he wasn't very popular. I'm guessing none of these guys were great actors, <laughs> and he decided it was too risky to attend the Senate meeting. But Decimus. Brutus was actually the person who went to persuade him to come. Mm-hmm. He also was the person that helped Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony also heard of the plot and was going to go tell Caesar that he was about to be assassinated. And Decimus was the person that managed to move Caesar around so that he didn't see Mark Anthony on his way into the Senate. Okay. So this guy who is in charge of guarding any and guardian of any of Caesar's children is legitimately walking him into his death. Caesar gets there. One of the other members of the Senate starts talking to him about a problem. And he pulls, this person pulls at Caesar's robes and branches a knife. Caesar says, why are you committing violence here? And he stabs him in the arm. And then he looks around and no one's moving. He says, no one's going to help me. And then all hell breaks loose. Now, because Caesar had been so late, Marcus Brutus, his potential son, all the rest of the Senate were actually getting cold feet and were thinking about leaving, and he was the one that persuaded them to stay and wait and that Decimus Brutus would, in fact, manage to get Caesar there. Mm -hmm. So the two Brutuses really were both almost entirely instrumental in Caesar's death that day. However, the next day they were all pardoned for their crimes... And as the remaining government was, it was in, in agreement that Caesar had almost totally gone off the rails. Mark Antony and Octavius were the two that were put in charge. That, that was their agreement was that they would not 
they would not prosecute the people that assassinated him mm-hmm. in exchange for them not changing how Caesar had set up the succession. Okay. So Caesar had got a plan in place for his death. He was, I don't know, he worked out 56 years old at this point. He was 56 years old. So he had a plan in place for his death and his succession, and their agreement was, we're not going to prosecute you guys if you let that plan go ahead. Okay. A lot of people thought that Mac Anthony should have been killed at the same time. Mm-hmm because he was a loyal follower of Caesar, but they decided that it was definitely, it wasn't murder, it was about rem- cutting off the head of the snake. Yeah. Um, which I guess why it's always couched as an assassination versus a murder, although I'm not really sure what the difference is between the two. Did anybody try to talk to him? And say, hey man, cut that. Cut that out. You're being real mean to those people over there with your armies. That's what they were going to talk to him when they brought him back, I guess. Like, cut that. Well, I mean, the Romans were pretty... Actually, pretty fair when it came to stuff, as long as you weren't a slave that they were feeding the lions. Generally, they did actually have I mean, if you were a slave, you knew that was on the cards. That's pretty fair stuff. That's true. <laughs> like, there were no surprises. So, that is my first proper I'm sure most of them murder. thought that was the hand that they were dealt. Yeah. Oh, yeah, probably. They were like, oh, dang, just another slave. Yeah. Off to the slaughterhouse. Maybe I'll kill the lion this time. Maybe I'll be this, the one. This time. <laughs> I don't have any ideas of reincarnation. No, no, no. Like, because the lion had killed, like, the slaves before. Them. Oh, okay. And they just all sat in, like, prison cells in the Colosseum. Yeah. So it was like, last time he died. This time, I might not die. Next time, somebody else will have to fight him because I'm dead. <laughs> all right. So, speaking of next time. Next time, we are going to deal with a few different things. We are going to deal with the actual conquering of England. That never happened. Not really. Uh, We are going to talk a little bit more about the Romans idea versus the English idea of marriage and romance um, from what we can figure out based on our limited sources anyway. And then the weekend after, the week after, we're going to go into Bodicea, the Warrior Queen. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a good fun episode. If if you're enjoying this podcast, check out The Swingdom. (laughs) It's a golf podcast. And there's a new podcast coming from Adam and I actually called Legendary, where we are taking some of the things that we pass over as we do historical research because, well, they're legends, not history. <laughs> and, and I don't do research for this podcast. <laughs> All right. What's um, research? And we're looking at some of the history behind them and the real, the real reasons behind the legends that we tell each other today. Um, all right, guys. So that is history through a house. Thank you so much for listening. Thank bye. You. bye. 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 Hi. Thank you so much for listening to history through a house. If you've enjoyed what you have to hear, please go onto iTunes and rate and review us. Also, we love to hear feedback, things that we may have done wrong, stories that you know that are interesting that we should cover, or houses that you know that you think we should cover. You can find us on Instagram at history through a house podcast or on Facebook at History Through a House. You can also email us at historythroughahouse at gmail.com. We really want to hear your feedback, and we're really excited to get to know you. Thank you. Bye.